And what this chapter of the Bible is really getting at is that as believers, we are going to go through times of suffering. We're going to go through times of suffering in our spiritual walk with Jesus Christ. We continue, as always, to live in a fallen world. And I think this chapter is so important as we continue to go through it to remind ourselves, too, is that the danger of false theologies and gospels. This is why, for me, I find the prosperity gospel to be such an offense to Christianity. Because it denies the word of God as it is written. We are believers. We're going to struggle and we're going to have suffering. And the anathema to me that the prosperity gospel teaches that somehow we come to Jesus and everything is wonderful. I heard a segment of a teaching of someone I know. I don't know them to be in ministry. They were talking in a men's group because they posted it on their, on their social media. And they were saying that God wanted me to be wealthy as an evidence of God in my life, that God made me wealthy in my current endeavors. And I'm like, I think you have this very, very backwards. I think you have this very backwards. So the prosperity gospel denies scripture because it denies that we are going to go through times of trial as Christians. And that's what Peter is writing to these Christians living under Roman occupation at this time. And he's telling them in verse 1, Arm yourself, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same mind, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Again, unpacking this in context, does that mean that if we suffer in the flesh that we have ceased from sin? No, that's not what it's saying. Unfortunately, another false theology that I've heard from people who represent the Pentecostal holiness side of Christianity, they take that fragment of that verse to say that once they come to Christ, they never sin again. And I've heard them preach on that. No, again, the overarching suffering, comma, in context. We have to keep this entire chapter of the Bible in context of what he's getting after. And what he's saying is is that we need to arm ourselves as believers to detest sin. We need to detest the sin in the world that we see. Verse 2, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. You know, our time on earth is so not infinite. Our time on earth is short. And we should live our lives no longer in sin, but as believers seek out to live our lives in the will of God. And that's what he's saying. We should live the rest of our time here, not for the flesh of men, but for the will of God seeking after Jesus Christ in our lives. Amen. Verse three, it says, for we have spent enough of our past lifetimes in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable ideologies. And I have to say to believers who are kind of thinking that they still want to live a little bit like the world, but they still want to believe in Christianity, that I kind of live with the idea of Peter, have you not yet had enough of the world? Is there not yet anything here of this earth that you desire? Is there not nothing, anything more of us as believers that we desire to be in heaven? What is it that you still want here? What is it that you still seek after and sacrifice for? What is it that you still want to spend your time seeking after? You know, I think of, um, it's a really, really popular thing right now uh, to do home renovations. You know, uh, I think of Chip and Joanna with Magnolia. They're super popular. Uh, I think of the local company I know here that, that does renovations on homes. And I think it's really, really interesting. But in all the homes that I always see renovated, you know, and they go in and what do they do? They immediately gut it, right? They go in there and rip it all out. Sometimes when I see that, I think about the person who originally built that home. And I often think about, what did they sacrifice to get that? What did they have to give up in order to get this home that they built 
that now someone 10, 15, 20, 30 years later is completely ripping out to start anew, to throw something new back in it. If you continue to seek after the things of this earth, if we continue to seek after our lustful pleasures or materialism like our culture is consumed by, you're going to sacrifice something. And what is it that thing that you're going to have to sacrifice that might in 10 to 15 years, it might be in the dump down the road. You know, and I think about that. I often think about the history of linoleum. Does anyone know the history of linoleum? Have you ever heard about the history of linoleum? Pastor Brennan's laughing. I've told him this one before, right? This is one of my favorite word analogies, word pictures, but follow me here, right? Linoleum came out in the 50s. It was the thing. It was, you know, and not, I'm not going to be ageist, but does anybody from that time here this evening possibly remember when linoleum came out? Maybe when you were in your youth. When linoleum came out, it was the it thing, y'all. It was, in the 1950s, the coolest, most space-age scientific floor covering ever invented to man. You didn't have to buff it, shine it, wax it. You didn't have to do anything to it, and it didn't scratch. And guess what? Only wealthy people could afford it, and they covered over hardwood floors with linoleum. And it was interesting. And in the 1970s, there was another big flooring concept that hit the market. And it was a huge rave. It was called carpet. And everybody had to have shag carpet in their homes, okay? If you look at the history of home, home decoration renovation, there's several stages. We go hardwood to linoleum to shag carpet. You know what's really funny? In the early 2000s, we rediscovered that in our homes, we really liked the look of natural wood. And what did people who do home renovations go into these homes and find when they ripped out carpet? Well, first, they ripped the carpet out, and underneath, they found a nice layer of linoleum. And underneath that linoleum, they found beautiful hardwood floors in many places that had a nice thick layer of glue on top of it. And in those three instances, what did people sacrifice? What did people do? You know, when people love materialism and they love stuff and they love money and they love going after it, they do some really horrific and wicked things to other people to achieve it. I mean, I see it constantly all the time, the trap of, of materialism. Unfortunately, I went even to lunch today and the guy in front, I was at the gas station getting a hot dog. And the guy in front of me, he bought seven scratch-offs and a 24-ounce can of beer at noon and I thought man that's sad that's tragic that's tragic this guy's playing scratch-offs at lunchtime you know but seeking that money and see if you seek after materialism you got to give up something to get it and what are we willing to sacrifice this infinite our time here on earth is so short you know and young people particularly the youth you know you know you hear it from people all the time I'll get right with God when I'll get right with God when I'm done doing X, Y, Z, achieve A, B, C, do it. Look, we've all said it, but here's the thing, young people, our time on this earth is not, our days are not promised to us. Our lives could easily end in the next 30 minutes beyond here. I don't wish it to happen to any of us. I hope the Lord would rapture us right now, and I'd be great with that too. But in our time, in our infinite time, what is it on this earth that we're still lusting after for, you know? And it's funny too, um, and if you think, I'll get right with God, when, I, I would say, you don't have the time. You don't have time. And for anybody who desires something, I say it again, what is it you want? What on earth is so more valuable than your relationship with Jesus Christ? And you answer that question, not me. That's not for me to tell you what that is. That's for you to seek the Lord and say, what is it here you want more than God? Because as a believer, and what Peter is saying here to the churches in Asia Minor is, there is nothing worth that. You know, and it's funny, there is nothing new under the sun, right? Look at this time that this is written. What is he saying? I mean, he could have written this for Columbia, South Carolina, COVID shutdown tailgating. 
Thank the Lord. Because I'll tell you, this verse could be written for a Saturday afternoon at a plethora of southeastern schools on game day. What does it say? Drunkenness, lust, lewdness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. That could be written to us right now. That could be written to us in our day and age right now. Abominable ideologies. And I know some people, I was talking to Pastor Jimmy about this today. You know, we may think about the biblical times that we may not worship graven images when we hear the word idols. But I certainly think that in our culture today, we have a lot of them. And we may not attribute them to the name of God's, but we certainly have a plethora of idolatries in our world today. Um, And they're wrong. And even in this time, you know, and what Peter's writing to, what's really fascinating is that when he's writing to these churches, their pagan houses of worship were almost like theme parks in a way for sin, sinful behavior. And when you would go into these pagan houses of worship, they had the restaurant area, they had the bar area, they had the house of prostitution in the back, they had the temple with which to worship it. So it was like a one-stop shop theme park of sin. And that's what he's saying to them. And the Romans, man, the Romans were the kings, well, the Greeks might, they're on part two, of having debauched festivals and debauched parties. We use words today in our English lexicon for many of their festivals. I've often heard the term, it was a bacchanal-type festival or a bacchanalia, or it was a complete bacchanal. If you don't know what that is, that's referencing the Roman god Bacchus, who was the god of wine. And the Romans had this wonderful festival, and I say that very sarcastically uh, when it's wonderful, but they had a festival to Bacchus every year, and it was a drunken, lewd event. And it was the highlight for them of their partying calendar. And we may not have a festival today celebrating the, the God of wine, but we certainly have many of them that celebrate ourselves and celebrate what we like. I mean, this could be written to us. I mean, really think of it. Lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable ideologies. I mean, that could be written to us today. And what's Peter saying? For have we not spent enough of our last lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles? That we, when we walked into this, what is it that we want left here on this earth that we're putting before God? Verse 4, in regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of disposition, speaking evil of you. Verse 4, and many people can attest to their days before Christ, myself included. If you ran with a certain crowd and then you came to Christ later and then not hang around them for a while, that when you do hang around them again, they're quite perplexed. You're different. It's a good thing when they say that, you know? It's a good thing they say that to you. I myself, I ran with um, a, a crowd that could be very well described in verse 3 in my younger days. I, I ran with a pretty partying crowd, pretty hard-charging, um, you know, partying revelry crew. And I've seen them since, you know, and it's very interesting. They all look at me in one way or another, and they go, you're different. And I go, yeah. I'm not who I was that you once knew, and I'm sorry that you knew me that way. They will think it's odd, and they will think it's odd that you are different, and they will find you out of sorts, and it happens. It happens. They say things like, you know, you're not the, you're not the same, and you kind of shake your head, no, no, I'm not, <laughs> you know, like, um, and I've had that in my own life. I've had people that knew me in those days that have met me again since and go, you're, you're not quite the same person, and I think that's good because I believe that's evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life. And you'll have that. And then sadly, though, when you don't, and I've I've experienced this too, when you no longer participate with them in the things that you used to do with them, as the verse here says in verse 4, they will speak evil of you. They will find ways to speak against you. 
and come against you because in many ways the Christ you represent now with the Jesus in you is going to be an offense to them. It's going to be an affront. You know, we're reading right now in youth, we're going through the study of uh, Counterculture by David Platt. It's a wonderful book. Um, if your child's in youth and you'd like to read it along with us and order it, I'd highly encourage you to do so if you want to. It's a, it's a wonderful book, but it talks about the anti-Christian age that we live in currently in our country. And a lot of it, the first chapter that we're going through right now with the youth discuss that the Bible and the gospel is an offense. It's an offense to people who do not believe in Jesus for, for them because they have to deny themselves. And unfortunately, we live in a culture that is so consumed with self. I mean, it is. We live in a culture and an age now where man has truly become the lover of self. And so when you say, I believe in a God, and I believe in a God, and I'm not it, and I believe in this thing called Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and God the Father, well, they're going to take an offense to that, and they're not going to like it, and they will speak evil of you. And I'm here to tell you, unfortunately, they will. But that's okay. In verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We are going to give an account to him, Jesus, who is ready to judge. In other words, don't be afraid of their feelings, of you being odd or them speaking evil to you, because we're all going to stand before the Lord. So if you have people who come against you for being a Christian, who maybe make fun of you for being a Christian, which I find odd, by the way, we live in a very much a you-do-you society. If I want to believe that a purple unicorn invented the earth, no one is offended by this. If I want to believe in any other religion, I'm given tolerance. If I'm given anything else or belief about where the existence of mankind may come from, if I'm a believer in evolution, I'm given tolerance from society. But if I believe in Jesus, that's all an offense. Why? Because Jesus is real. And the gospel is an offense to the unbeliever. But it's okay. If you suffer for the sake of Christ... It's okay. We're all going to stand before the Lord and give an account. Verse 5, they will give an account to him, capital H, who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You know, I, I hear people say this all the time, and I hear believers sometimes get frustrated with this. How can evil people get away with the evil things that they do and nothing happens to them? Have you ever said that? Have you ever said that to yourself? Have you ever said that to other people? Man, that person's wicked. You know, you've got someone in the workplace who gossips about people, who tries to tear people down, who meddles in the affairs of others. And, you know, it never seems like they get their justice, do they? It never seems like, when are they going to get hit by a bread truck at a stoplight in the middle of nowhere? You know, we all have those people. We laugh because it's true, right? Have we not all had that individual? But I will tell you, I will tell you, we are all going to stand before the Lord and give an account of our lives. And they will too. And he is going to come and judge the living and the dead. And what that means is you may think you're getting away with it in this life, but you will stand before the living God, Jehovah, one day, and you're not going to get away with it then. And if you are downtrodden because you have people in your life that are wounding you and you're praying to the Lord, Lord, when is it that justice is going to befall these people? What I say to you and what Peter is saying here in chapter four, let it go, move forward, because in this life or the next, they will stand for an account of the things that they do. And, and I'll tell you, it's like a child. It's like, you know, children do funny things. I have four. They're wonderful. They do wonderful things. They're a blessing. But, you know, it's funny. It's like sometimes children do things and they think they're getting away with it. They think that they've gotten away with it scot-free. But then they get caught. And they're like, man, I didn't know you were going to catch me. Oh, you really? You didn't know I was going to? I live here. I, I kind of lived here longer than you. 
And I think sometimes I wonder if God feels the same way. Does he see us playing as human beings at things and thinking in our minds, I'm going to get away with this. No, the wages of sin is death. And if you're doing ill to other people and committing sins against other people and thinking by tricking people and manipulating and doing horrific evil, that somehow you're getting away with it when you're not caught in this life, I promise you God will when you die. And I know one thing that is promised to all of us. We are all going to die. Our lives, no one here is going to live forever. So don't be afraid. And don't be downtrodden if anyone comes against you that somehow you think that they're not getting their justice. Because in this life or the next, justice will come if they don't turn. You know, And we should pray for those people. And we pray for their salvation that they may come, that they stop these things. So they don't stand in judgment before the Lord, not knowing Him. But it's okay. If people come against you, don't worry, okay? You know, verse 6, because they will give an account. In verse 6, for this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Time out. Again, context, right? All right, let's take this verse. Because again, unfortunately, there are some denominations out there that manipulate a little bit of this verse, and they have beliefs like baptism of the dead and some other really wacky things and praying for people's salvation when they're dead. That is not what this verse is at. Again, keeping it all in context, right? For this reason, the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. So what does that mean? Now, Warren Wiersbe is a really bright guy. Uh, Pastor Brandon, for my birthday several years ago, bought me two commentaries, uh, Old Testament and New Testament. I read them often, and I'm really thankful for them. Warren Wiersbe says about this verse, Do not interpret this verse apart from the context of suffering. Otherwise, we will get the idea that there is a second chance for salvation after death. Peter was writing to his reader, reminding them of Christians who had been martyred for their faith that had been falsely accused and now in the presence of God have received their true judgment. So what does that mean? So again, what is this saying? There were Christians martyred in their time, as was common the case in this time in history, which this chapter of the Bible was written. And what, the, what they're saying is that these Christians that were martyred for their faith, that were falsely accused by men, are now in the presence of God receiving their true judgment. They died in the faith and now receiving the true judgment of Jesus Christ standing before him. The true reward. They suffered for Christ. Listen, and we talk about it all the time. We have brothers and sisters in countries where to claim to be a Christian is a deadly thing. It is to put your life at risk. There are countries like Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Indonesia. There are countries where if you claim to be a Christian, you are putting your life physically at risk. And, you know, there are many days that I look at our state of South Carolina and I think, man, there's some ways we could improve, but I'm very thankful that we're allowed to meet as a church. I'm very thankful that we have brothers and sisters in other states who are now celebrating a decision by the Supreme Court. They can go back to church and they can have church. I never thought I would live at a day in an age where Americans were told they couldn't go to church by the government. I, I really didn't. And, and you could say I'm naive in thinking that, but I truly never thought that our First Amendment would be coming under such assault. No time prior in American history has the church ever been told to shut its doors, not for anything, not even the great Spanish flu. They asked services to move outside. I can actually show you the news articles. I looked them up. I looked them up. I looked up the Washington Post or the predecessor of the Washington Post from the 1920s. I actually looked and read the articles where they appealed to churches to find other ways to have services, just not indoors. 
but no church was ever asked to shut its doors during the Spanish flu. And no time in American history have we ever had the church told, you can't do it. And so for me, when I experience this, I'm, man, I think this is weird in context of history. You know, we just celebrated Thanksgiving. We just celebrated Thanksgiving. Unfortunately, there is now a, um, an element of cancel culture that wants to cancel Thanksgiving. And I find that pretty offensive to me. I do. Because when we look at the true meaning of Thanksgiving, and is does, does anyone here not aware of the first Thanksgiving, what they were really celebrating? It wasn't really a super joyous occasion of celebrating the bountiful harvest of the wonders and wealth in the new world. I don't know how the peanuts got that wrong in their interpretation of Thanksgiving. But do you know that 102 pilgrims set sail from England under religious persecution to this country in 1619? And when they landed freezing cold in the dead of winter, boy, if you were going to escape religious persecution, they really did not do on the navigational planning of weather charts when they landed at Plymouth Rock. They landed in the dead of winter. And as some of you who've been in agriculture know, ain't much that grows in the dead of winter in northeastern Massachusetts. They starved. And a lot of them died. And do you know what the first Thanksgiving, do you know how many were still left after the 102 that began their voyage? 45. 45 people celebrated the first Thanksgiving. We know this because of a letter that was written by one of the first participants. These people were not having a feast in joyous celebration of the wealth of the new world. No, they were thanking their God for their survival. They were praising God and invited the Native Americans who helped them in the local tribes that lived them, thanking God that they were still living on the earth. I mean, that's what the first Thanksgiving was truly about. But now we want to cancel it. You know, I saw a hashtag unthanksgiving on Thanksgiving, and I was really not happy about it. Man, what has happened to our culture? We tell people in a time of trial and a type of deep concern when 32 million firearms have been purchased, at a minimum, by the way, that's a minimum of 32 million firearms, because some people purchase multiple at one time on one background check. When people are concerned, when people are afraid, when people are worried who their president is going to be, when people are worried everything around them, that their elections aren't safe and everything else, and our culture, in some states, persecuted the church and said, you can't open your doors. I mean, the church has been part of the bedrock of this country for those who've been suffering since the beginning. It has always been our country. And look at the time in which we live. But it's okay. You see, because there are people who meddle in the ways of God on this earth. But just like verse 4 tells us, you will stand before God one way or another. And it's okay. We will endure. Just like our brothers and sisters do around the world. We endure for the sake of the gospel because we know it to be true. I don't know many people that die for things that aren't true. I'm not dying for Superman. I'll tell you that one right now. If someone came up to me and said, believe in Superman or not, do you believe in Superman? We're going to kill you if you say you don't. I ain't dying for Superman. Okay, he's fake. He's a comic book hero. But people die in the name of Jesus Christ all the time around this globe every single day. And I want one thing about human nature. They don't die for things that aren't real. Verse 6 says, For the reason the gospel was preached also to those in the dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. It's so amazing. I mean, really, to think about it, if you're martyred for the faith, it's okay. If people falsely accuse you and murder you, guess what? You're going to be in heaven with the Lord, and there you're going to receive your real judgment. Amen. You know, I, like was it a year ago, there was a young man. I still see him criticized all the time. I heard him criticized on a podcast the other day. You know, there was a young man who sailed to an island a couple years ago. It was two years ago. He tried to reach an unreached tribe in the Indian Ocean. And he got off the boat, and he was immediately filled with arrows. And he was killed. 
And people were so cynical of this young man's death. I mean, he went to share the gospel with an unreached people group. They actually know these people are unreached because it's documented how unreached these people are. In fact, some countries, I believe it's India or Sri Lanka, intentionally want to keep them cloistered because they want to remain a cloistered group of people. And this young man went to spread the gospel to them, knowing that they were an unreached people group. He died for it. And our culture mocked him. They mocked him. But it's okay. Why? Because the true judgment he receives in heaven. Amen? And now we're going to get a break in this. Now we're going to verse 7. Verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. I believe, as I know others do, in the pre-tribulation imminent return of Jesus Christ. If you don't, um, I'm sorry, and that's okay, as long as you're a believer in Jesus. However, I believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ for his people. I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. I do, because the gospel is very clear about it. And I also believe that one of the reasons I believe so strongly in the imminent return of Jesus Christ for his people is I don't believe that man can condition the earth in such a way that's going to bring about his return. Okay, God doesn't need me to do anything that's going to make him come back for his people. He will decide. Matthew 24, 42. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. The imminent return of Jesus Christ. He is coming for his people, but I believe it will come when he chooses for it to come, whether that be today, tomorrow, a thousand years from now. And I love people that engage in biblical prophecy. There's a lot of people, they're really hardcore into it. They look at all the signs and the wonders. And because I think their motivation for being so deep into end times prophecy is because how strong their desire is for Jesus to come. I say amen to that one for sure. You know, that their desire to have Jesus come back for his people is so strong that they're looking for any sign to make sure, oh, this is going to be it. And did you see this? And did you see this? Did you know they did this? Then they did this. I've heard them. I've listened to their podcasts. I've read some of their books. I love them because their heart is true in their intent that they truly just desire Jesus to come back. But I do not believe that there is anything on this earth that cannot be accomplished that is precipitating the Lord coming back. He's coming when he wants to, and I pray it happens today. Okay, I believe in the absolute imminent return of Jesus Christ on this earth. And therefore, if that's the case, how are we living right now? So this is what Peter said. The end of all things is at hand. The end is coming. This world will end. Interesting that this was written so many thousands of years ago. But the truth is the same today. The end of time is coming. It will come. It will end. This world will end. And I believe it will. Jesus will come for his church. And his his prophecies will be fulfilled by the book of Revelation. But here's the thing. If this is true, and we believe this to be true, if the Lord were returning Saturday, how would we live? If you knew that in three days from now, and I'm not, but this is purely a lesson in faith. This has, I am not prophesied. There have been false teachers who've come along and said, the Lord's come back on this. I'm not doing that. What I'm saying is though, is to the individual believer, if Jesus Christ were returning on Saturday and you knew it, how would you live your life right now? And just think on that. I'm not going to give you an answer. That's for you to decide. That's for you to ponder. How would you live your life? How would you live your life tomorrow? How would you live your life on Friday? If you knew the moment that that was going to occur, and if you think about that, that's how we ought to live every day. We should live every day praying intently for the return of Jesus Christ and living that we know it is coming and it is coming soon. We should live our lives as believers every single day knowing that Jesus Christ is coming back for us, that his imminent return is imminent at any time. 
like a thief in the knife, he will come for his people. Amen? And be serious and watchful in your prayers. Be serious in that. You know, Peter's been saying, hey, look, it's coming, man. This world's coming to an end. I have to say, if you were a Christian in the Roman era, I bet you thought Jesus was coming. I bet you did. When Nero light lit the gardens, his gardens, uh, with the flaming bodies of Christians on crucifixes, I guarantee Christians probably thought Jesus was coming back. Jesus was coming back then. But is it really no different? I mean, the world has calamity all through it. If I look at one, I've studied history my whole life. I love history. I love history because it helps me keep things in object. Again, I pray every day to be objective, to keep things in context and the right perspective. If I know history, it helps me so much understand context and perspective. It helps me so much to understand these things. And if I can tell you one thing, that there is a shared thread in all of humanity since the date of existence, it is suffering because we live in a fallen world. There will be wars. There will be rumors of wars. There will be pestilence. God's word is true. That In this life, it is not the life promised to us as believers that we will have our best life right now. Again, this is why I find the prosperity gospel such an anathema, because what it preaches is it's against the reality of, the, of, of human beings, and it's against the reality of what we're called to be as believers. We will have suffering. However, we will have joy in the Spirit, not that we will have joy in the Spirit and then Jesus becomes my spiritual vending machine. That's not how it's supposed to work. And unfortunately, the, such the danger of that, of that theology, what's so dangerous about it, is when we do go through times, when we go through things like COVID, you know, and we go through things as a culture like COVID. I think about school children all the time. And I think about our teachers all the time. I see data every day about suicide and children's suicide. I see things about childhood depression rates going through the roof. If we don't think we're having an impact to our society right now, I'm sorry, folks. we got to start. The, the reality is, is there are consequences for everything that has circled around, what I call second and third order effects of COVID. There is a ripple effect on our culture, and it's sad and it's tragic. There is. I mean, some people, thankfully, this has passed them by, and, and some people, thankfully, their jobs have continued, and they didn't feel like anything happened in their lives. I've heard people say, my life went basically unchanged through COVID. Okay, that's cool. But a lot of people, some people truly have suffered and are suffering as a result of everything that's going on. In verse 8, it says, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Man, again, keep it in context. Man, again, in context, all right? Because unfortunately, people want to take that fragment of that verse and manipulate it to say a lot of things about sin. So what is that saying? And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. And what I think what Peter was getting at, and from the, the commentaries I've read, what it means is that love cannot take away sin. L love does not take away sin. The love of Jesus Christ took away sin. But rather, Peter is saying that love, by an extension of forgiveness, will wash away the pain of sin in, in your life. Unfortunately, people have been wronged by their family members, okay? People have had horrific things done to them, you know? And Pastor Brennan, this past Sunday, if you haven't listened to it, it's a wonderful message. He talked about tradition versus reality of belief in Jesus Christ and how we may hold on to traditions like the Pharisees were accusing Jesus of washing their hands. Unfortunately, we've held on to beliefs in the church about unforgivable sins that aren't true, that have wounded people, that have hurt people, that have caused believers who've come to Christ to stay guilted in shame. I think about the, wonder, um, the wonderful results of abortion recovery ministry 
Unfortunately, people held such opinions on such things that, that women have suffered in silence in churches for decades, um, having had an abortion in a past life before knowing Jesus, and then feeling the guilt and the shame of that and feeling unforgiveness in churches because churches weren't reaching out to them in that time. Love washes away a multitude of sins. We have to have love for people, you know? And if a family member wronged you, if somebody hurts you, yes, the love, but they said, they said Jesus will know us by our love. The sin that someone may have perpetrated against you, and that may be wrong, and that may be terrible, the love that we have for one another can wash away the pain of that through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I'm also not saying that if you are currently suffering as a result of someone's sin against you, that that love makes that okay. Does everyone kind of get what I'm saying with that? All right. Because unfortunately, people want to manipulate this verse to say, regardless of what occurs to you, you know, your love can wash that away and it's okay. No, that's not okay. And if you're harming somebody and manipulating them and, and putting them under that and then using the word of God to do that, I would highly recommend you stop. So again, these verses, you got to keep it in context. You have to keep it in the context of what he's saying. Love washes away a multitude of sins. And by that, again, going back to those who were martyred in the faith, right? Receiving the true judgment. They were sinned against, but the love of God washes away that sin. Amen? Again, we got to read. This is a this is truly chapter four is a lesson in keeping scripture contextual, and it's why it's important that we read verse by verse and we talk about these things, because unfortunately Christians sometimes in their talk or coming from certain denominational backgrounds or just in general will throw out the fragment of the verse. They will say like verse one, arm yourself. It's okay, go buy a gun. Look, I don't. Not making a statement on the Second Amendment. Have no problem with people owning firearms whatsoever, okay? But I've heard people say, oh, did you know in First Peter it says to arm yourself, so it's okay to go get a gun. Okay, that's not what he's saying, you know? Like, again, keep it contextual. Keep it contextual. So here's what we get in the remaining verses. and We're getting close on time, so I'll get through these pretty quick. So we read verse 9, 10, and 11. Now we get the exhortations. And the word exhortations means an address or communication emphatically urging someone to do something. So here we get. So now Peter has made his argument for the conditions of everything that is going around them. The Lord is imminent. Suffering will occur. It's okay if you were martyred for the faith. But now he's going to exhort you, exhort you with, what am I to do? Again, if I'm going to do, I, I hear all the, you know, it's easy to always, anybody can diagnose a problem, right? But what's so hard to do is to find a solution. Anybody can tell you it's broke. Ain't nobody can tell you how to fix it. You know, and so now what Peter's going to do is he's going to tell them what to do if time is short, which it is, if Jesus' return is imminent, what are we to do? What are we to do with ourselves and our time? Verse 9 says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. When I think of this, I think of Mary and Martha moments. That's what I kind of call them. You know, sometimes in the church, and if y'all don't know this, there are people that serve constantly that you never see here at church. There are people that clean the building. There are people that serve in children's church. There are people that serve food on Wednesday nights. There are people that come here and replace things as ceiling tiles and upload videos. There, there are people that serve in a multitude of ways in this ministry that often most people never see. And that's okay. I call those Mary and Martha moments because sometimes you're Mary and you sit there and you listen to the teaching just as Mary did at Jesus. And sometimes you're Martha and you're cleaning or you're helping facilitate, or you're helping do what's needed to be done for the sake of the ministry. Be hospitable, welcome, friendly, sociable. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. You know, I've, I've had the opportunity, too, in traveling and in my secular profession. I've worked with British people a lot. 
They're very interesting. The UK is a very interesting subject. But I've worked with Brits on several occasions. And I always have, and I tell people, if you're ever going to go work with anybody from the UK, don't ever mistake British politeness for niceness. They are exceptionally polite. That doesn't mean they like you. They're just polite about it. It's very weird. And it's very hard for Americans to grasp because we're very brash. We're very loud. And we're known as being very rude. And we're also being known as very direct. Well, Britain could literally look you in the face and in the politest way possible tell you they hate you. I've seen it happen. It's very funny. And they won't even use that strong a language. It's very interesting. You know, but be hospitable. Be welcoming and friendly and sociable. Stop grumbling. Okay, what is it to grumble? Okay, don't murmur, groan, complain. Man, people love to do that. People love the people, people do enjoy complaining. Some people do. You know, we know certain people in our lives. They're kind of like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. You know, they're, they're always losing their tail. Like, oh, Pooh, I don't know what happened. You know, Eeyore, right? Good old Eeyore, right? That's okay. We love them too, you know? But again, we have to be doers of the word, not grumblers of the word. You know, the Bible calls us to love one another. And by loving one another, that means charity. You know, Peter's really great about telling us, if people have an ought with one another in the body, what are we to do? Do we grumble about it? Do we complain about it? Do we, no, we're supposed to go to them in love and explain, hey, look, that was an affront to me. I really wish you would explain that to me or communicate to me because you really hurt my feelings, you know? So verse 9 says, be hospitable to a number without grumbling. And verse 10, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And this is really important because some people, there's this thing called a spiritual gift inventory and it's cool. You know, it's not a hundred percent, but it's still cool. Each one of us has a gift from God. Each one. Some people think they look at pastors and they, I could never do what you do. That's okay. Maybe that's not your gift. Your gift may not be teaching, but your gift may be hospitality. Your, your gift may be service. Your gift may be working in the nursery. Look, don't ask me to go in the nursery. I don't even like to hold my own kids sometimes. Okay. Like, that's not my gift. Listen, it's funny. When I got married, my wife thought I didn't want kids because, A, I kind of didn't. But I would never hold other people's children. I just don't. I'm not a baby guy. That's just not me. I'm sorry. I know me. It's important to know me, to know yourself and know what you're good at, know your strengths and your weaknesses. But each and every one of you is a believer of Jesus Christ and, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit has a spiritual gift. And if you know it, amen. And if you know it, Use it. Use it towards the good of the body of Christ. Some people are blessed with skill sets that others don't have, and that's okay if you don't. But if you got it, use it. Use it for the benefit of Christ in verse 10. You know, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Man, I'll tell you, we, we are to be stewards of God's grace. Grace is not a thanksgiving feast of sin. Okay, there are some people, again, in our new age interpretation of Jesus Christ and, and everything else that somehow believes, yes, grace covers a multitude of sins, but that that doesn't mean, as I've said before when I've taught, that it's a sin buffet, that you get to go up to the sin buffet, like you go to a Chinese restaurant, and you get a little bit of that sin, you get a little of that sin, you get a little of that sin, and when you go to the checkout and you pay out, you say, God, forgive me, and it's okay. We're not supposed to do that anymore, but some believers do, and unfortunately, there are some churches that tell you that's okay, and no, it's not. We are to be stewards of God's grace. And as a steward of God's grace, we are to be an extension of that to one another and those around us by giving grace. Why? Because God first loved us. And if we stop and think every time we feel like we don't need to extend God's grace to somebody, let us pause, reflect, and say, why? Because God first loved me.
And when we remind ourselves of God's grace as a benefit to us, we ought to be stewards of it and extend it to other people. Verse 11, if anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. I'll pause on that one right there. It is a heavy thing to preach the word of God. It is a heavy responsibility to preach the word of God. We are to be oracles of God. We are to be as if when we speak. And this is why it's so important that we examine so much any commentary, any book, anything that may claim to be of God, that we examine it to be truthfully of God. Because there are a lot of false prophets and a lot of false teachers out there using the name of God for whatever motivation they may have, but it certainly may not be of God. And we are to speak, let him speak as the oracle of God. It is a responsibility for us to guard one another from false theologies, false faiths, false gospels, and false teachings. Amen? This is why, again, I'll say it again, and I'll probably say it for the rest of my life. The prosperity gospel is just an anathema. It is an anathema to the true word of God. It is so wrong to propagate that against people because when suffering comes, as it will and it shall, it tells people that God isn't real. It makes them think God is fake or their faith is fake or they haven't believed enough or they haven't tithed enough or they, they haven't worn the nicest clothes yet or they haven't presented themselves in the right way. This, this is such a, such a damaging, false belief to believers. And, and again, we are to be oracles of God. We are to be stewards of God's word. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. When we do minister to people, let us remember that we are, that we are stewards of God's grace, that we're going out and being oracles of God's word. That is, that is so important. These are powerful verses, as all verses of the Bible are to the Christian faith. They're so significant. But please, keep it in context, right? Keep it in context. You know, unfortunately, there's so many little pitfalls in here through our own maybe misunderstanding of what Peter may be saying in these verses that can lead us to a dangerous path of saying things that these verses certainly do not mean. But unfortunately, certain people, for whatever reason, do that. So again, keep it in context. Keep the God's word in context. Read it scripturally, contextually. Read it in its entirety. Teach it. Love it. Pray for one another. And remember, the Lord's return is imminent. No matter what we're going through in our daily trial, weekly trial, whatever trial, the Lord's return is imminent for his people. We got a reserve parachute on the evil of this world. And one day the Lord's going to come and pull it and we're going up. You know, amen to that. With that, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you again to Pastor Brennan. It is always a pleasure to teach God's word. It is a pleasure to be able to facilitate uh, the inspired words of Jesus Christ to you. Um, I am I am no more than a facilitator of God's word. God's word teaches through itself. Uh, so again, if anyone feels that they have the gift of teaching, yet they are afraid that they don't have the right words, they don't know what to do, it's okay, because the Holy Spirit will guide you and assist you in all of it. And if you know your gift, use your gift for one another. Amen? Amen. So let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Lord, what a blessing it is to be here, Lord. Lord, let us cherish this time that we are here this evening, Lord, that we are here, Lord. There, there is, above all things, we should desire nothing more than to be in right fellowship with you and in right fellowship with one another, fellow believers in Christ, in your house. This is where we should want to spend our time, be in our time, be in your word with you, Lord Jesus, abiding in you consistently and constantly, praying for your ever-imminent return for your people, Lord Jesus. We thank you so much for that opportunity, Jesus. We thank you for the opportunity to be here, Lord, just to be present 
Lord, is such a humbling thing in your eyes, Lord Jesus. We thank you so much for that. So, Lord, I pray for these people, Lord. We pray over all their prayer requests that were said here, Lord. We pray for those online who are watching us from afar. We pray for them in their homes or wherever they may be, Lord, wherever they may be right now watching this, Lord. We pray for them specifically where they may be tonight, Lord Jesus. We pray for their safety, for everything going on in this age, Lord. We pray so much, Lord, and thank you so much, Jesus, for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you would like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.